In this edition of the podcast, Tate comes to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Light, created by Karen Greenberg, former head of international collection exhibitions at Tate, talks about the inspiration for the exhibition, the challenge of choosing pieces from such an extensive collection, and how a touring exhibition evolves over time. I'm Tim Stackpool, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again, and as always, we acknowledge the original custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced and listened to, and we pay our respects to First Nations elders around the world, past, present and emerging. Thanks to our episode sponsor, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, who concentrate on faithful photographic reproductions of your work for exhibition. You can learn more about their services at pixelperfect.com.au. And a reminder, too, of our own video catalogue of short-form items we produced or acquired over the years, which you can view on demand for free at www.australianartschannel.com.au. Light at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, or ACME as it's also known, is drawn from the Tate's prestigious collection and explores the influence of light, shade and darkness across the world of art, imagery and cinema, with works by Joseph Mallord, William Turner, including his epic painting The Deluge, exhibited for the first time in Australia, Claude Monet, Alfred Sisley, Joseph Albers and so many others. The challenge of capturing light has spurred artists across time to develop innovative techniques and inspired moving image makers who use light and shadow as the building blocks of their craft. The exhibition is presented alongside ACME's award-winning permanent exhibition called The Story of the Moving Image, which places the 19th century arrival of the moving image within a continuum spanning thousands of years of storytelling. This major touring exhibition from Tate explores how light has inspired artists, uniquely placing film in a broader art historical context. Now, Karen Greenberg is an independent curator and writer based in London and the former head of international collection exhibitions for Tate in the UK. In addition to curating the light exhibition, she is the associate curator for the upcoming 14th Guangzhou Biennale. And she joins us now via Zoom. Karen, thanks for your time on the podcast. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I actually want to talk about the exhibition shortly, but I just want to get your opinion on a couple of things first. I find, of course, when you, for instance, put together an exhibition for any particular gallery, and then you kind of consider, well, we might be able to tour this, or we might be able to share the expenses of this with other galleries around the world. And I kind of wonder whether that's always been the case, or whether we're seeing more and more of that perhaps this century. Tim, I think touring exhibitions is not a new phenomenon, but there are several models which have been refined over the years and um, which are now in wide use. And there's a couple of different ways of touring. The one is touring alone in exhibitions, and these tend to be exhibitions that are drawn from a very wide range of collections, typically in as wide uh, geographic locations. Those shows are most often monographic, blockbuster type of exhibitions that would be really too costly to organize on one's own. So in those instances, one's usually sharing costs and occasionally you'll find that the originating venue is charging a fee. Mm. There are also historic exhibitions that require significant research to realize where the extra resource of other organizations is extremely helpful. So in those instances, you might find a couple of different arts venues coming together 
to co-organize, sharing the kind of burden of both the logistics and the curatorial work. And while those kinds of exhibitions can attract a fee, they're typically realized as collaborations with with that shared curatorial input. What we're talking about today is a touring collection exhibition which is an exhibition drawn from a single or a small number of collections. Mm. The VNA in London and the British Museum have been touring their collections internationally for quite a few years. Tate began touring collection exhibitions about 20 years ago, but this was initially on an ad hoc basis, so very much on instances of replying to inquiries that were made. And in fact, Australia was one of the first countries that Tate ever toured to. Mm. Um, we organised a pre-Raphaelite exhibition, which yep. went to the Art Gallery of Western Australia in Perth in 2003. But it's in the last sort of five to eight years, really, that touring collection exhibitions has ramped up at Tate. And it's become much more strategic and professional. And there are many advantages, I think, to, to touring exhibitions, as, as you indicated before, you know, the, the sharing of collections and expertise more widely, but also critically of works that might otherwise be unavailable to the public, either because the collection is so large and much of it is in storage at any one time, or sometimes because a museum is undergoing renovation or is closed. So Recent examples might be the Courtauld Gallery that toured highlights of its Impressionist collection to mm, Japan, mm, mm. Um, including really amazing masterpieces like Manet's of Art, the Follies Bergère from 1882. Um, and that was only possible because the Courtauld was closed and undergoing renovations. And it was a great opportunity to share those phenomenal works more widely because they're typically on permanent display in London, yeah. but also an opportunity to raise very much needed funds for, for their institution. Touring offers opportunities to kind of forge new relationships and strategic partnerships in other parts of the world, and also to build profile for the lending organization and develop kind of new audiences, particularly in this era of of the internet and access being Mm. so much broader and wider. Mm. Mm. But something that's not really mentioned is the opportunity to develop curators' experience and and to surface research that they might be doing that isn't possible to kind of surface at their, their own organizations. And that's something that I really enjoyed about working on the light exhibition is this opportunity to work in different parts of the world in completely different spaces and with a much wider range of colleagues. Yeah, wow. Um, and finally, as I, I alluded to earlier, you know, the income generated from, from touring and collection exhibitions helps support the very significant costs involved in caring for collections of that, that kind of scale. Yeah. So when it comes to those costs as well, just digressing a little bit more, the, um, the, the sharing of costs in terms of acquisitions as well, which, which goes across continents too, there's a bit more of that happening as well. Is this all tied up in the same sort of thing or, or a completely different mindset? I mean, I think it's slightly different, although it's it's obviously being um, kind of prioritised because of the same factors. Mm. So, you know, I think the, the idea of jointly acquiring a work is something that is relatively new. I mean, there were instances historically of works being transferred from one museum to another. So, for example, probably the most well-known is the relationship that MoMA had with the Metropolitan in New York, where kind of MoMA was able to, well, the, the initial idea of Alfred Barr was to sell works that were older than 50 years to other museums, reasoning that they would no longer be modern and therefore they would be more appropriate to reside in, in historic kind of collections. Sure, sure. They quickly realised that that was <laughs> playing a losing hand and, and abandoned that um, approach. Mm. And now, of course, it's one of the most important collections in the world. Mm. But the idea that, I suppose, in a, in a city like London, historically, 
the museums have sought to kind of cooperate in pursuing separate collecting spheres so that they weren't overlapping yeah. specifically because they were all considered national kind of collecting institutions. That's become much more blurred as more institutions have started to collect contemporary art. Yeah, and we see that in Australia as well because there's there's shared acquisitions between, for instance, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney and Tate uh, in the UK as well. So yes. it's not foreign to us, but of course, being in Australia, it, it works to our advantage in two ways. One is that we get to see the most incredible touring exhibitions that so much of the population wouldn't necessarily be exposed to. And then secondly, of course, we gain some ownership into some pieces that we couldn't possibly have the opportunity to own outright. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The MCA relationship that Tate has um, was born out of Tate engaging in Australia Firstly, through collection exhibitions that toured there, then through kind of um, an interest in collecting art from Australia. And, you know, slowly the kind of conversations develop and relationships deepen with colleagues in those countries. And then, you know, kind of share the concerns and, and start to think about how we can collaborate mm. and, and find opportunities. Mm. So that that relationship, which was supported by Qantas, was very unique, I think, mm. and, and very special and enabled both MCA and Tate to acquire some extremely significant works. I wouldn't say it's typical. Uh -huh. um, I think it is a fairly unique model, particularly because of the huge geographical distance between yeah. the two collecting institutions. Yeah. I think in the States, you'll see that happen more often, where actually transferring the works between the institutions is easier within one kind of country. What I would say is more typical is jointly acquiring complex video installations, right. where there's very little to store, very little to ship, and where the purchase price can be quite significant. Mm. So, for example, I worked on a major acquisition of William Kentridge's work, I'm Not Me, The Horse Is Not Mine, which was gifted jointly to the Israel Museum in Tate mm. back in 2011. And at that point, we were very much kind of grappling with, well, what does the contract look like? Who gets to show the work when? You know, these kinds of questions, actually, who keeps the, the material? Right. Who's responsible for archiving it and, you know, transferring it as technology changes and so on? So it, it opens up lots of complex questions, legal questions, as well as practical and curatorial questions. Mm, mm. But it does make a lot of sense to share resources, particularly in the era of the climate emergency and um, especially, you know, right now where resources are extremely stretched and all museums are kind of struggling with funding and after a couple of years of not being able to generate much income. So I think we can expect to see much more collaborative working. Which, which is great. And, and in terms of that as well, when you are thinking about perhaps uh, sharing or touring an exhibition like Light at Acme, what do you have to consider as, as the originating curator when you see uh, other venues pitching or you pitch to other venues, other galleries, in order f for them to actually take your exhibition? I mean, it's, a, it's a good question, Tim, and I think it's really important to do a site visit and to understand the space uh -huh. um, as well as its capacity. So questions around, you know, are they able to care for the works? Mm. Is the climate conditions mm. appropriate? Mm. You know, is this security? But more than that, I think it's understanding your partner's commitment to building and, and uh, serving audiences. Mm. So understanding actually, well, how do they function within the ecosystem? Are they the right partner for that particular show? Because they might be somebody more appropriate in that city, for example. So it's not only kind of their ability to physically take the show, it's, it's more about kind of the rapport and the sense that 
they can do something interesting mm. um, with the materials and also the quality of the exhibition space. You know, how's this going to feel for an audience within that particular environment? So touring enables one to work in kind of a wide range of places that might otherwise not be possible. So I'm thinking about kind of India and South Africa, you know, where they, there might not be the infrastructures that you would normally expect, but and where, you know, loan requests from those institutions might not kind of galvanize or, or get approved in a, in a major institution like Tate. But when it comes to touring a collection exhibition, you're able to offer a whole lot more support mm. than you would otherwise with a single loan, for example. So Tate would organize the crating, the transportation arrangements, the insurance. We would send a courier or couriers if necessary. There would be the curatorial support. There would be support with interpretation materials. So it enables you to work with like, perhaps smaller institutions that don't have that big complement of staff. Yeah, right. But also in contexts where perhaps there's the financial resources, but there's other factors at play. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it's quite exciting to be able to work in that way because it means that it's it's a much wider pool of, of partners. Whereas the loan in touring exhibitions, you tend to kind of find... MoMA, the Met, the Whitney, Tate, kind of Pompidou, all partnering together mm, mm. repeatedly. I mean, that's starting to change as well. But that's historically kind of been the, the way that it has worked, where organizations of the same scale and with similar types of resources behind them have kind of come together to work collaboratively. Whereas I think now we're starting to see that fragment a bit and much more diversify. So, you know, that a big institution like Tate can work with a much smaller or even a private organization somewhere else in the world. All right, let's get back to this exhibition we're talking about, Light. And, and given your experience, when it comes to curating a project such as this, where does it start for you? I mean, the subject is so broad. I mean, how does your approach kind of change when it comes to the content? I was thinking just today, I mean, do you have a, a Rolodex catalogue of what you have available to you and you're flipping through it and thinking how you can construct this? Is it that simple or is it is it far more complicated? <laughs> Yes and no. I mean, so Tate's collection comprises over 77,000 works. Mm. It is well catalogued, so it's it's relatively easy to search. I mean, I think once you – so I was at Tate for 14 years, yeah. and, and during that period of time, you become very familiar with the collection, and you begin to actually understand – how its history has kind of made it what it is. But also you you start to quickly realize that although it's a huge collection, there are very particular works that are increasingly kind of being requested or kind of in-demand works. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that are usually wanted for permanent or semi-permanent display at one of our own venues. Mm -hmm. And because of that exposure and they're well-known by the, and loved by local audiences, but also typically are well-known in the international sphere. And those tend to be the works that are requested for loan out. So you, you're kind of chasing after the same things oftentimes, which means that one has to kind of come up with a curatorial idea that is very robust to convince colleagues that actually they should relinquish <laughs> those works to you yeah. for tour. Yes. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting balance really of, on the one hand, it being kind of limited to the works that are in the collection, but on the other hand, you know, there are a lot of them and you kind of got to navigate your way through quite a complex set of requirements. Mm -hmm. For an exhibition like this, we, we set on the idea of light because, of course, Tate's collection is, is very, well, JMW Turner is very extensively represented within Tate's collection. And he's perhaps the best loved English romantic artist and is known as the painter of light. Yeah. So on, on both counts, it made sense to begin with Turner for this particular show. 
And it's it's broad, you know, conceived as a broadly chronological survey of how artists have used light as a subject and the media mm. since the 19th century. Mm. So it is very broad. But by starting with Turner, we kind of narrowed it down um, immediately. And I wanted to create a broadly chronological show that explored how artists have, have used light in so many different ways that wasn't kind of pedestrian, that moved through the different art kind of periods from a Western perspective, but was slightly more complicated than that. So I began to think about, well, actually, how do we how do we start punctuating that history mm. in, in ways that can be productive and take us in different directions? And so you start to kind of see unexpected juxtapositions. Yes. So yes. intuitively, like I, I tend to create curate intuitively uh, and visually, and it's always informed by art history, but that's not kind of the, the starting point for me. So, you know, started to kind of look at well, what, are, what are all the works in Tate's collection that deal with the theme of light? And then, you know, how do these relate to each other? Where are the synergies? Where are the divergences? Mm. And intuitively, I felt, for example, that there was a connection between Bridget Riley and Liz Rhodes. Bridget Riley, of course, known for distinctive paintings, which engage the viewer's sensations and perceptions through her simple vocabulary of color and abstract shapes. And Liz Rhodes being a feminist filmmaker, whose iconic expanded cinema work like music creates a more central and participatory role for the viewer within this very dynamic, immersive environment. And then I stumbled across this lovely quote, which talks about the sound and vision of Liz Rhodes's light music are intimately connected to the op-art patterns reader's audio and the images zip and sizzle on the screen mm -hmm. like cinematic Bridget Riley. Mm -hmm. And then you start to think, okay, well, this intuitive connection that I've made between these two artists, it's not just me who's seeing that. Yes. Somebody else yes. has already kind of made these connections. And I think that's what's quite exciting about curating like that is, is you're able to surface things that perhaps aren't straight art history, yeah. but where there is something kind of visual or aesthetic. Yeah. Um, that links different practices. Now, Light has been touring prior to arriving at Acme. Do these shows evolve over time? Do you make changes depending on where they're going or, or are, there, are there practical needs that cause you to change an exhibition while it's touring? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So the exhibition was originally conceived for the Museum of Art Pudong in Shanghai as one of their inaugural exhibitions for their opening in July last year. Right. And they had a huge space and they had a very particular idea as to what kind of works they wanted to present. They wanted a lot of historical kind of paintings. And, and so that was kind of the brief. And at that point, we didn't know when, where or how the exhibition might tour beyond Shanghai. Mm -hmm. I was really focused on making an exhibition for them. Mm -hmm. And so by necessity and, you know, design as well later on, Absolutely, the exhibition needed to change. So for starters, there were very few institutions that could have presented it on the scale that it was at in Shanghai, which is, they also, you know, they wanted, as I mentioned before, a large number of historic paintings, particularly those by the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, who you may well know kind of have these really detailed, intensely colourful kind of complex compositions yeah. that recall that of 15th century Italian art. Just beautiful, just beautiful, yeah. Absolutely stunning. But those works are in huge demand and usually on permanent display at Tate Britain. But, you know, for Shanghai, we were quite fortunate in that Tate Britain was planning a major collection rehang, which freed up those works temporarily so they could be included in, in the presentation in Shanghai. And then because of Acme's focus on the moving image, we really wanted to give more space to the contemporary works. Yes, so, yes. And that, that's what we've done. 
So, you know, I believe all touring exhibitions need to adjust to meet the needs of the host organizations and their audiences. Um, and there's lots of different ways of doing that. It might be through the interpretation. It might be minimally altering the checklist. It might be, you know, changing the emphasis of the exhibition or altering the layout. And not all lending organizations approach a touring in that way. I mean, some send absolutely everything with the exhibition, you know, from a ready-made catalog to the interpretation panels. But, you know, I think it's important to understand that you're working in a different context and to embrace that. Mm. And also the, your colleagues who, who know the space, who know the audience, who know the program that this sits within, are well advised to collaborate and, and find find what's going to work for them. And I think as as the lending organization, it's incumbent upon you to be responsive to, to those ideas. So, you know, in the case of Acme, the idea of the exhibition remains intact, but the space kind of did demand a number of changes. A, kind of a key one is moving light music by Liz Rhodes, which I mentioned earlier, into its own space mm -hmm. on in Gallery 3. So it's given a lot of kind of prominence. They also commissioned a new work by Australian artist Michaela Dwyer, which will complement the light exhibition and that, that I'm very pleased about. Of course, with a historic exhibition drawn from um, a British collection, it is heavily male. So to be able to kind of counterbalance that, I think, was important. And also to have a local artist yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is a nice addition. It is good. Michaela's one of my faves as well, but you're right. And, and the other thing is, too, on that note is, of course, that the perspective of the audience is is given consideration because there's nothing worse than yeah. stepping into a gallery and then thinking, well, you know, sometimes it's tough enough to relate to contemporary art or, or art in general, but then sort of feeling completely alienated because there there's no connection being able to make locally. It does leave you a, a floundering. I, absolutely. I think you're right. And, you know, when the ACME team proposed supplementing the interpretation for the exhibition to make more connections to the history of the moving image, and they had some really uh, interesting ways of doing that, Tate was absolutely amenable and, and very excited to to support that in, in any way that we could. So I think it is important that exhibitions are relatable to local audiences, even if the content is completely, you know, foreign and, in fact, probably more so in those instances. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and you talked about how you received some reassurance going through and determining the content and how connections were to be made between the various aspects of the exhibition. But was anything uncovered to you that, that you thought was quite unexpected, which took you by surprise? I mean, I think it's probably worth saying that I'm a modern and contemporary African art specialist. Okay. Um, that's <laughs> but at Tate, all, all curators are expected to be generalists. So, you know, for me personally, it was a wonderful opportunity to dive deep into the, the collection. Tate's collection of British art spans 1500 to the present and international art 1900 to the present. In my time at Tate, I've worked much more with the international collection, modern and contemporary collection than I ever did the British historic collection. So mm. it was you know, great fun looking at some of the really incredible historic works in the British collection, which of course I knew about and had, had studied at school and at university but hadn't ever had a chance to to work closely with. So that was, you know, exciting to start to really look at, you know, Turner's paintings, for mm -hmm. example, and, and start to think, well, okay, he's known as the painter of light, but which paintings of his exemplify that in the most interesting ways? And how do we then connect that with uh, more contemporary practice? So you know, I had lots of fun uh, looking at Turner's lecture diagrams from the early 1800s, which he made to illustrate his, you know, how to... Uh, represent the reflection and refraction of light, for example, 
And he made those lecture diagrams to illustrate that to his students at the Royal Academy. Mm-hmm. Those are not so well known, but actually look really contemporary. And then when you put works like that into dialogue with something uh, like Liliana Lane's Liquid Reflections from 1968, you see that actually two artists approaching the same ideas from very different kind of historic moments in completely different media. But so playing with the idea of how, how does light and art and science all kind of intersect to create something new. Those kinds of connections for me were exciting to kind of draw out because mm-hmm. it was a history that I was much more familiar with, with one that I was less familiar with. Um, and I hope that, you know, audiences will have that same kind of revelation, I suppose. Yeah. And a, a tremendous amount of detail there. Are we talking about your preparation from start through to delivery? Are, are we talking 18 months here? Are we talking two years here? So I worked with um, a curatorial assistant, Matthew Watts, who's actually from Australia, but based in London. And the two of us worked really intensely intensively for the best part of 18 months. Mm. So yeah, I mean, obviously we were doing other things as well. A huge amount of research went into the show. And then of course there's the catalogue and and we were also supporting the Museum of Art Pudong in getting ready to to receive and deliver a show, which was obviously their first show. So mm. I mean these things don't come together quickly, no. even when they are all drawn from one one collection. I always just think the intensity of the work that curators such as you, especially when dealing with international collections, there's an intensity there. I mean, there's a preoccupation almost. It's like you're constantly distracted. People say, you know, what time do you start work in the morning? And it's it's as soon as you open your eyes, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I always said curating isn't a profession. It's a lifestyle. Yes, you know? yes. um, <laughs> it, it isn't something that switches off at 5 p.m. and you walk out the door. I do wake up in the middle of the night and I think, oh, that amazing work that I hadn't thought about, mm. um, that could work extremely well um, in this space. So what about this venue for that exhibition? You know, so so definitely is is a life choice, but such a rewarding profession to be involved in and such an honour to work with artists and be able to kind of share what one learns along the way with a wide range of people. Yeah, I love how you can walk into an exhibition and then there's the surface layer, which is what you presented, and then there's a deeper layer of trying to understand and trying to relate to how the curator has put this together, how it has been presented this way. And especially in terms of an exhibition like Light, there's the foundation that you put in place and then the local curatorial team at ACME, then making it work in their space as well, in collaboration with you. Sometimes I think the artistic process is not just what's on the walls, but how you have actually come to this point, how you as curators have come to this point. And I think that's a work of art in a way in itself. I mean, I think curating is definitely a creative endeavour. I mean, I I don't... There are some curators out there who who will draft a checklist and not think at all about a visitor's journey through the space. Mm. And they'll hand over the checklist to an exhibition designer who will then do the creative work of thinking about, you know, how does a visitor move through the space? What do they see? What are the works that are, you know, hanging next to each other or which work proceeds or follows the next? I'm not one of those curators and there's there's not that many um, that I know who who take such a distance from the finished product mm. um, and who approach it from a much more art historical kind of theoretical position. For me, that's like writing a book. I am really interested in what does it mean to be in space with art? What does it mean to be physically present, looking at something closely? That's why I will always advocate for physical exhibitions rather than for virtual experiences, even mm. though those two have a place. Mm. They don't, for me, supplement. You know, they're a supplementary rather than kind of taking the place of of the physical experience of viewing art in space, which I think you're right, is a creative 
practice. Well, Karen, look, it's tremendous from what I've seen, uh, light coming together. You've done a, a terrific job. We're so privileged, I think, to actually have it come to Australia. And we thank the folks at ACME as well for making it available to us in Melbourne. I really appreciate your time on the podcast. I know you have so much else that's going on. So, uh, and thank you again. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to speak with you. That's Karen Greenberg, independent curator and writer based in London and former head of international collection exhibitions at Tate, talking there about the massive amount of work that goes into curating a show like Light, which is running at ACME in Melbourne through until the 13th of November this year, so plenty of time to get along and catch it. More info, of course, can be found at www.acmi.net.au. That's acmi.net.au. And there's a link to that site at our website, of course, at www.insidethegallery.com.au, where you'll also find a transcript of this episode made possible thanks to the contribution from Pixel Perfect Pro Lab. Keep in touch via our Facebook and Instagram pages. And if you have any news about your exhibitions, then, of course, please let us know as well. Thanks for listening once again. I'm Tim Stackpole. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>